Should vegans be advocating for animals whilst they are at work? Veganism is on the rise, but are we actually eating any less meat in the UK? And will England's first ever vegan hotel let you eat animal products in your room? Anyway, that's enough of the falafel. I'm Anthony. I'm Richard. And this is episode 7 of Vegan Week. Thanks for joining us for episode seven of Vegan Week, sponsored by the fabulous people at Fire and Flow Coffee, a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswolds with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. Fire and Flow is a vegan founding company run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil. We're incredibly grateful for their backing of this episode and a bit later in the show, we'll tell you a bit more about how you can get hold of their delicious coffee and tea. But before then... We're all here for the vegan news, views and discussion, and we can't do that alone. So joining us this week is the hardest working Catalan man living in South Wales, to the best of my knowledge anyway. It is my good friend, Richard. Hey everyone, I can't wait for another hour or so of vegan news and deep discussions. Anthony, did you see how many downloads we had in the last week? Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? We've been delighted to see the podcast growing each week. And indeed, we've now had listeners from New Zealand, the Philippines, Germany, Ireland, South Africa, and a load from the USA in the last couple of weeks. Drop a message to say hi to us. We'd love to hear from you, even if you're from little old Great Britain. Yes, and thank you everyone who took the time to let us know that you enjoyed last week's show, where Anthony and I were joined by Tom and Kirsch. We loved having even more voices on the show, and now that we know it works, we're planning on having even more guests in the future. Yeah, if you're interested, drop us a quick message via enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. There's no prior broadcasting experience needed. We're all amateurs here, and we'd love to hear more voices on the show. Anyway, on to this week's episode. You may have tuned in today to hear us discuss the subject of being vegan and advocating for animals at work. Should we always be speaking up for animals, or is there a time and place to turn our activism off? That will be our main discussion topic today, coming up in the second half of the show. Yes, but seeing as this is the Vegan Week podcast, we always make the first section of our show a rundown and commentary of our top 10 vegan news stories from the week. Right, enough of the falafel, let's do it. Okay, we've selected 10 news stories that have been released in the last seven days, all of which relate to veganism, animal rights or outcomes for animals. Rich, how should we start things off? What about with this news story from The Guardian, UK meat consumption at lowest level since records began? Yeah, this this looked really positive, didn't it? So people in the UK consumed less meat last year, so 2022, than at any point since records began in the 1970s, which The Guardian describes as a trend driven by the cost of living crisis, the continued impact of COVID, as well as broader lifestyle changes. So data released by the government showed that Britons ate less meat at home in the year up to March 2022. So Actually, it's probably more like 2021's data in in the main, isn't it? So they ate less meat at home in that year than at any point since 1974. The average person ate 854 grams per week. 
which is still an awful lot of dead animals. That was down, however, from 976 grams the previous year. So what's that as a percentage? That's sort of 10, 15% lower. Um, it's an across-the-board drop too. So beef, pork, and lamb fell by 26%. Chicken and other meat products fell by 11% in the last decade. There was also a drop in Britain's takeaway meat consumption. So people were eating fewer burgers, kebabs and meat pies in terms of grams per person than at any point since the 1980s. And the consumption of fish also fell over the year with the average person eating 135 grams per week, which is down from 148 grams. Uh, that's pre-COVID levels i mean rich this sounds like great news doesn't it it sounds like great news but i'm I'm wondering is it because the pe people are eating the same amount of meat but they're more vegans around there uh i'd love that to be the case i just don't think there's enough of us as vegans to, to make that much of a difference i mean it might might be contributing towards it no i think i think it's a very good new story i think the these are very positive numbers and I hope the trend keeps going down. I mean, when you think about it, it's still a lot of meat. There are a lot of animals being killed and a lot of fish. But it could be that COVID also started like a bit, little bit of a trend of people wanting to be a bit healthier. Maybe people had the space and time to think about their diet. And maybe there's not that many places around now uh, offering these sort of foods. I know many companies also have started promoting more healthy habit, habits. So there could be an element of this, but it sounds good. Yeah, it does. I, when I first saw the, the sort of uh, analysis from the Guardian's point of view, they were pointing a lot of it towards the cost of living. And I, I kind of went away from that and thought, no, it's not that. It can't be that. But actually, the data does seem to suggest that is at least part of it in that people are moving to cheaper cuts of meat. And this, this bit was quite interesting. So the highest 10% of earners have been eating 10% less meat a week. But the poorest 10% of earners are eating 20% less. So that does kind of suggest that the less money you have, the, the less meat you're now eating. Do you think it could be the assumption that to have a balanced diet or to, to have enough food to sustain you, you need to eat meat? Like happened, you know, many years ago, medieval ages and all this, people that ate meat were seen like with a higher social status. So I don't know if there's an element of this where you think I can't ditch meat because that's giving up part of my status. I think culturally that's something that's been going on, like you say, for a very long time and is still happening nowadays. We see when, when countries become more affluent or a country's population becomes more affluent, they will start to eat meat because it does have that status symbol. And my hope is, I don't know about you, Rich, but I kind of hope that now uh, ceasing to eat animal products is becoming a sign of enlightenment and that uh, it, we're, we're showing our true evolution. There is a downside to this story. I, re I read a great article on greenqueen.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. Um, and the, the article was entitled, Yes, Brits are eating less meat and dairy, but they're also consuming fewer vegetables. And actually the story shows that that, that vegetable consumption is down and that actually whilst liquid dairy consumption is significantly down and has been for a long time um, actually cheese consumption last year basically in the last two years Brits ate more cheese per week 
than they ever have done since records began in the seventies. So not not all positive, but um, on, on balance, I was I was quite pleased with this because um, I, I hear a lot of people saying, well, the rise in veganism doesn't necessarily mean that people are consuming fewer animal products, and I think globally that is true. I think unfortunately, animal consumption across the world is still increasing, but in this country, at least uh, in the UK, where we're broadcasting from does seem to be a good uh, uh, well a, a, tr- a trend in the right direction let's say yes it makes you wonder if cheese because of the concentration of casein it has it makes it more difficult for people to stop eating it while if you think about it milk probably doesn't have the same concentration and therefore it's more likely that people will stop drinking it for many reasons I've certainly heard that put forward um, from, from doctors, um, plant-based doctors, that, that that can be a thing. I think as well, foods go in and out of fashion, don't they? And I think cheese is definitely culturally at the moment a, a big thing in this country. I don't know whether that's across the, the Western world, that's the thing. But um, yeah, who knows? Let's hope next year has a similar headline. Yes. Also from The Guardian, ex-officials at United Nations farming bodies say work on methane emissions was censored. Yeah, we gave a little teaser of this story last week because it broke just as we were about to record, so we couldn't really cover it properly. But indeed, The Guardian has revealed that former officials in the United Nations farming wing have said that they were censored, sabotaged, undermined and victimised for more than a decade after they wrote about the hugely damaging contribution of methane emissions from livestock towards global heating. Team members at the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, we'll call them the FAO from now on, um, who were tasked with estimating cattle's contribution to soaring temperatures, said that pressure from farm-friendly funding states was felt throughout the FAO's Rome headquarters and coincided with attempts by the FAO leadership to quote-unquote muzzle their work, so kind of silence it, I suppose, or, or, or reduce the impact of it. The allegations date back to the years after 2006, when some of the officials who spoke exclusively to The Guardian on condition of anonymity wrote Livestock's Long Shadow, which was a landmark report that pushed farm emissions onto the climate agenda for the first time. So this has been going on for nearly 20 years. The Livestock Long Shadow report included the first tally of the meat and dairy sector's ecological cost, attributing 18% of global greenhouse gas emissions to livestock, mostly cattle. Now this shocked the industry that had long seen the FAO as a reliable ally and spurred this internal clampdown, as as these whistleblowers have, have deemed it, by the FAO hierarchy according to the officials, serving and former FAO experts said that between 2006 and 2019, management made numerous attempts to suppress investigations into the cow climate change connection. Top officials rewrote and diluted key passages in another report on the same topic. They buried another paper critical of big agriculture and excluded critical officials from meetings and summits and briefed against their work. They are, quote, that they've given is there was substantial pressure internally and there were consequences for permanent staff who worked on this in terms of their careers. It wasn't really a healthy environment to work in, uh, said one of the ex-officials. I mean, Rich, talk, talk about a cowspiracy. This is massive, isn't it? I know, I know. It sounds, it really saddens me the fact that for the interest of some people, these things are hidden. I mean, that's happened in the past with the tobacco industry. And with many other things where people know the truth, but they're just not willing to share it. 
And it makes you think, you know, there's something bigger than yourself. There's something greater than you and for the benefit of all of us. But it seems to me like the work of lobbying industries and probably interest of the people that are in certain positions not to share it. I mean, I'm hoping that this will change um, because if not, you know, I don't know where we're going if not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first instinct when I I read this was, um, well, is this for real? You know, I I can be quite sceptical about things that sound like conspiracy theories and things like that. But actually, reading the article in in detail, The Guardian spoke to around 20 people from the FAO to corroborate the story. And it, it did add up, you know, this does seem to be a genuine thing that was happening. And perhaps even more tellingly, the FAO and several meat and dairy industry lobbyists declined to comment for the story. So, I mean, that, that silence speaks quite loudly, doesn't it? I mean, can, can, you, can you see this sort of behaviour changing, Rich? Like, uh, surely the more and more stuff like this that gets exposed, the more self-conscious these lobbyists and these, these big organisations become that, that, you know, I think if people know they're being watched, they're, they're more likely to uh, behave in a more reasonable, moral way, perhaps? You'd wish, you'd wish that happens. I don't know, as long as they have interests there, I'm, I can't see this, this changing because probably most people want to believe that and most people want to believe that, yeah, the problem is plastic and other stuff, but yeah, they don't want to hear this. But, but um, corruption, generally speaking, is, is something that is, is still prevalent at, at, across the world in terms of government and things like that. But surely it's, it's becoming less so or less extreme. If you go back 100 years, if you go back 500 years, 1,000 years, the more aware people have become of these things and the more empowered they feel to put it under a spotlight. It's slow and it's painfully slow, but I think... I'm, I don't know. I'm optimistic that over time, these things just gradually get better. I would agree with you that in the last 100 years, there's less corruption. But I think people are very intelligent and in finding new ways of covering corruption. So, yes, I would agree there's less corruption, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, well, let's let's move on, shall we, before we start um, talking about lizards. So yeah, let's move on. Closely linked to our previous story from Farming UK, DEFRA pledges to cut emissions through methane-suppressing feed products. Yeah, DEFRA has confirmed this week that it will work with farmers to encourage the widespread adoption of methane-suppressing feed products. Research has shown that feed products with methane-inhibiting properties could significantly reduce emissions, particularly in the cases where you have confined cattle. Um, in in, in a small space. Um, These products may include ingredients like seaweeds, essential oils, organic acids, probiotics and antimicrobials. The idea being that basically when cattle consume these products, they will produce less methane than what they're currently eating. The products are expected to enter the market from 2025 with farmers widely adopting them no later than 2030. Defra said it's vital that we continue to explore ways to assist farmers in sustainable food production whilst also reducing emissions from agriculture. Rich, it's especially ironic to have this news released the same week as the Guardian's expose on, on how methane emissions from cattle have been downplayed. It's, it's also a little maddening in terms of uh, their solution to rising emissions. 
I know, I know. I mean, we're talking about how to lower the emissions of cattle and we've been suppressing the emissions for the last many years. So if, if methane is not a problem, why should we be doing this? It makes no sense. This is, you know, when you admit that really that is a problem and it needs tackling. Now, probably they're not tackling from the right point because obviously, even if they reduce it, that it should say that they still have the moral and ethical problem of how they raise animals and kill them and how they feed them. So if you'd ask me, I don't think this will bring down emissions. Well, as well, when you look at the the total emissions from animal agriculture and you break it down per animal, actually, whilst cattle is definitely the most, um, the, the, the highest emissions, actually, the other animals are still higher than the highest emitting vegetables and grains and things like that actually so even if you get ignore methane if, if if no methane was being produced by cattle there's still far more emissions being produced by animals regardless of of, of this change and as well sorry i'm i am going to rant here but like to me it, it just highlights how sickening it is that we have complete dominion not only over the lifespan of animals not only where they live their life but what we're feeding them as well and we're saying do you know what this practice is causing this problem in terms of greenhouse gases so let's not stop what we're doing completely let's just change what we feed them it, it just strikes me a, a really really clear example of just how we manipulate things and we we won't admit that we're doing the wrong thing we just try and change it slightly it does my head in i totally understand you and sometimes i ask myself well if people are clever enough to come with these solutions and go to university and get one degree two degrees masters whatever why is it so difficult to understand that probably you shouldn't have complete dominion over other animals and just do what what you want with them i mean there's something wrong about having all that knowledge and not understanding these basic things yeah yeah we're we're not we're not sounding especially balanced but i think it's fair it's fairly reasonable to to get quite passionate about these things just interestingly um in this article reported by farming uk they said the agricultural sector in the uk accounted for 10 percent of the total greenhouse gas emissions in 2019, which kind of highlights the issue from the previous story, doesn't it? In that actually different people are reporting completely different numbers in terms of the emissions total, um, which is maybe one of my reservations for kind of using the environmental argument for veganism. Actually, if you just focus on the fact that animals' lives are needlessly being ended, you kind of can't argue that either way, can you? But just a side, side note there. What okay. about if we stick with farming uk but move to a bit more positive news hooray yeah good Uh, okay as i said from farming uk decision to allow badger culling in northern ireland is ruled unlawful by the high court yeah so we've had a couple of uh, relatively positive stories regarding badger culling in the last two weeks now this one from northern ireland where like you say rich a decision to allow badger culling from a couple of years ago has this week been ruled unlawful in a high court judgment. So this decision was made in 2021 and this consultation allowed the cull of up to 4000 free roaming badgers a year. That's what was said 2 years ago. However, the legal challenge to the Department of Agriculture was brought by Wild Justice and the Northern Ireland Badger Group and the judge Mr Justice Scofield agreed with anti-culling campaigners this week. 
that a couple of years ago, the consultation did not meet the requirements for a lawful consultation. So it's been overturned. The Ulster Farmers Union president, however, David Brown, said farm families have been on their knees on their knees due to this disease, i.e. bovine TB, for generations, and they are desperate for a successful strategy that will tackle TB in all its hosts, ensuring healthy cattle and healthy wildlife. Like we've said, Rich, like from an animal rights perspective, seems like a positive story. But that that last quote from David Brown, the, the Ulster Farmers Union president, does show that it, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem of bovine TB at TB bovine tv that's a whole new tv channel um doesn't solve the problem of bovine tb in terms of the effect it has on healthy wildlife uh does it no and you know what makes me think i don't want to put negative thoughts here but it's about if you think about it we're just legislating or this is only about the vagus can you imagine if we had to do this for every single species that any country has. Like, should we pass a law for, I don't know, cats, dogs, badgers, mouse, rabbits, Mm. butterflies? I don't know. It seems like a bit tiring. So I think, yeah, I I can see positives. I mean, I'm really glad about the badgers. But yeah, it makes you, the last bit about the TB in cattle makes you you think. I suppose uh, that that highlights the the power, I guess, of a social justice movement and a a, a philosophical uh, or animal rights philosophy it, like that spans countries, that's that spans religion, it spans everything that divides us. And and actually, if we can get on, any individual can get on board with that message and can change their behaviour overnight. So whilst that takes time, it, it shows how transcendent that is and how powerful it can be. Um, obviously, a long way to go, but that's that's quite reassuring in a sense. Yeah, and let me just say a positive thing just to end. Probably we have more things in common than differences. So probably one of the things that we all are born with and we need to potentiate more is compassion. I mean, surely regardless of the religion you have, regardless of who you are, what you believe in, we all have compassion. So I guess it's a matter of just encouraging that. Sorry, I know this is a tangent, but I'm a strongly believer in that's one of our natural skills. Amen to that, Rich. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Thanks for letting me go on a tangent, but maybe we should move on to our fifth story. Now, these are some... The next stories will be about some studies. So the first one is from the National Library of Medicine, a study looking at how the DASH diet affected late-life cognitive complaints in women. Yeah, so this was a study looking at a whole bank of data that had been collected over over 30 years, looking at individuals and their health outcomes. This focused on just over 5,000 women with regards to their adherence to the DASH diet. Now, we'll get on to what the DASH diet is in a sec. But basically, the conclusion of this study that the authors said with a 95% level of confidence looking at the stats was that the more people adhered to the DASH diet in their mid and later life, the lower prevalence they had of what is called late life subjective cognitive complaints. So obviously extreme examples of that would be things like dementia, but just general cognitive decline as people's life, their lives go on. Remembering this was just with women. Now, this has been widely reported. I've seen this reported in several vegan news sources as a sign that a whole food plant-based rich diet could prevent middle-aged or elderly cognitive decline. However, when I looked into the DASH diet, I wasn't 100% sure what it was. 
it's not actually completely plant-based. Yes, there is a, a heavy emphasis on plant-based foods, but it's not strictly vegan. So the, a definition from the Mayo Clinic, not that kind of Mayo, describes it as follows. The DASH diet focuses on vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. The diet limits foods that are high in salt. It also limits added sugar and saturated fat, such as in fatty meats and full-fat dairy products. However, it includes fat-free or low-fat dairy products, fish, poultry as well as beans and nuts so sounds like a really nice clear-cut study the more you eat of this the less you have this negative effect but but rich do, do you think the fact that it's not strictly a plant-based diet does that complicate the conclusions like are these news agencies who are reporting it as a, a kind of victory for a plant-based diet is that a bit premature is it mis misguided uh it might be a bit misguided i feel like it it's um What's the concept? Plant predominant. So we've gone mm. from vegan to plant-based to plant predominant, which means that you're not fully plant-based, but fruit, vegetables, whole food, you know, is uh, a big proportion of what you eat. And I think they do it to be more inclusive, mm. so not to exclude anyone. It's, I guess it's a step forward because it's not a low-carb diet, which makes no sense at all. Mm. It's plant-predominant, so it encourages people to eat more fruits and veg. And while I'd like to see people going vegan, the more fruits and veggies they eat, the less animals they kill. Yeah, I mean, my feeling with this is that there are, there are studies out there that are showing this that have a, a data source that is purely plant-based, and that would be what I would share. Obviously, you know, it seems to, it seems to be pointing in this direction. But just from a, a vegan perspective, I, I think it's slightly ambiguous. I hope I hope you'll understand why I've included it, because actually it's, it's been reported by a lot of vegan news sources as a positive thing. But I, I'm not so sure. And I kind of wanted to raise that, really. Yeah. And I guess they shared it because they want to prove the point that mm. that should be the base of your diet. Should yeah, be, uh, it's, you know. I, but I, I think that's, I understand, like you're saying, I understand that impulse. But I think actually we, we've probably got to be a bit more strategic than that. I know I know we want to put news out there and, and people want to get their clicks and stuff like that. But putting something out there that's not a completely vegan study, I, I don't know. I'd like to think I wouldn't do that. But then maybe I have done that by even including it in the news. Who knows? Philosophical discussion. Discuss. I think one of the issues also or the challenges we have is one thing is what what the study is and what it proves and what the research is about and the other one is the the ethical and moral implications of it because we go back to the methane story where no I'm not going to share this if a study finds that the plant predominant diet is good you can't just not say no I, I won't publish it although I don't like it Right, mm. but from an ethical point of view, you you're allowing for people that read it to think it's okay to eat a little bit of meat or a little bit of fish, when, and that's the reason. That is the reason why, personally, probably I I might not share it because I I think okay, this there are many many studies out there that prove that the whole food plant based diet is the best diet. I mean, and what do you compare it with? I mean, what if we ditched? The animal products would it still be better yeah and and there are studies that show that i mean i mean that what you're saying there is you're withholding you're withholding sharing a study because it's giving misleading or, or mixed messages from an ethical or moral point of view but what the fao is doing is they are 
withholding things because it doesn't fit a certain agenda. And I like to think on Vegan Week, we will share stories. If there is a study that says, actually, there are these drawbacks from plant-based eating, like we did last week, there was a study that said, actually, some plant-based children aren't getting enough protein. And we shared that story. And I think that that adds credibility to your message if you're willing to if you're willing to acknowledge where you're falling down and where you can improve, that gives credibility to your message. And I think that's really important, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, we need to share these stories, whether we like them or not. That's that's our aim. Um, So totally agree with what you say. Should we move on? Yeah, let's move on to a study that's got a more clear cut uh, response to it. Let's (laughs) go to it. From the Public Library of Science, Roosters do not warn the bird in the mirror, the cognitive ecology of mirror self-recognition. Yeah, so a bit of background before we start this one. Roosters warn their mates when they see an aerial predator, but when they're alone, they do not make that warning noise. Okay, so that's a bit of background scientific information you need to know. So this study tested individual roosters alone, then it tested different roosters with another male, and it tested other roosters with a mirror in front of them so it kind of visually it looked like they were with someone else but of course they were still alone and what they did with in each scenario was they put a hawk's silhouette flying above them so the rooster thought there might be a threat from above now we'll get onto the ethical ramifications of that later maybe rich might have something to say on that but the findings from the study was that roosters mainly, not all the time, but mainly emitted alarm calls when they were in the presence of another individual, but not when they were alone and not when they could just see themselves in a mirror. Therefore, the, the, the theory that the authors of the study have drawn from this and that you might have already drawn is that chickens possibly recognise their reflection as just a reflection of themselves. So they don't think that it's another chicken another rooster with them i mean rich it doesn't sound like much but i i wonder whether this could be potentially a significant discovery not not just scientifically in terms of roosters brains but just from a philosophical point of view with regards to animal rights do do you feel like that or is that a bit of a stretch (laughs) Uh, let's be positive okay let's be positive so no let's be real let's be real forget be real Oh, now you're making me doubt. What should I do? Okay, I'll be honest. What about that? Yeah, Yeah, of course. I think it's a good... It's a good sign that we're studying, you know, that we are aware now or we have proven these things or that we believe these things are true. But do we really need studies to prove that, oh, maybe they are kind of smart, you know, so therefore, what does that mean? Oh, look at what we're doing with them. Oh, maybe we shouldn't have, like... 10 million of them in a cage because they might be a bit stressed or they might not be, you know, they might be a bit suffering. I think we do. I think we do need those things. I, I, I Honestly, I, I think I, I was very interested in chimpanzees and great apes when I was younger. And I think a big part of that was that I could see similarities between myself and them. Now, I'm not putting myself down <laughs> when I say I'm similar to a chimpanzee. But I, I think anything we can do to draw, like you, you were saying earlier, those similarities that we that we have, the similarities are greater than the differences. And the more we can highlight them and be aware of them, because a rooster doesn't look like us, whereas a chimpanzee does, a gorilla does. So we're, we're, we're more predisposed to notice those similarities, whereas we might need a bit more help to overcome that gap or understand that gap. 
with something like a chicken. So I, I don't know. I think for some, a lot of people, it won't make a difference. But I think some people, it just nudges them a bit closer in the same way that when you compare cognitive similarities between pigs and dogs, it, 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 it can make same. a... Yeah, yeah. But, 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 but hearing that makes a difference to, to some people or it helps some people make the connection. And I, I think this is the same thing for this. And, you know, one of the things I hope this will change is the way we talk about animals and we use animals to describe behaviours. Have you heard ever, you you eat like a pig or mm. you're a chicken, you're an ostrich, you're a donkey? And those are myths that we put into our children's mind and in society. And we build, we, we grow up thinking that's true. No, sorry, no, I'm not a chicken or in the way... You, you know, people might mean it. Here's a study that proves it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, if, if I could just add something, reading into this study a, a bit more, I was initially a bit sceptical when it said that not all of the roosters kind of passed the test, so to speak. So they didn't all pass the sort of mirror recognition test. But interestingly, that's the same for chimpanzees. So if you do the same sort of test with a chimpanzee, it might not be with a hawk above. There might be different ways of seeing if there's, there's mirror self-recognition. But not all chimpanzees pass the test. And not all humans pass the test. So if you put children in front of a mirror, not 100% of children would actually pass a mirror self-recognition test. So uh, actually, that that to me was was quite hopeful that this slight um, blemish in, in, on the part of roosters isn't necessarily a sign in, in the weakness of the theory. When you reach my age, sometimes you do not pass that test either. <laughs> so, because you don't recognise yourselves, you think, oh gosh, what went wrong? Um, yeah. But anyway. Good for the roosters, I say. Good for the roosters. Okay, we're down to story seven. From plant-based news, a new survey has found that 67% of Brits did not know that many sweets contain bits of animal bodies. Yeah, so two-thirds of people surveyed weren't aware of many sweets not even being suitable for vegetarians. Uh, also in the same survey, some 35% were disgusted to discover that gelatin contains components such as animal bones and cartilage. This was a survey commissioned by Candy Kittens. You might recognise the name as a sweet company. They are indeed a vegan sweet company, not a scientific body, but still, they've done a survey and people have responded. Candy Kittens said that this research has confirmed our suspicions that shoppers aren't being made aware of what their favourite sweets truly contain, especially when it comes to gelatin. Some more stats from the study for you here. Nine in ten respondents to the survey said there should be more transparency with labelling gelatin. Um, and indeed, a third of respondents said that they would be prepared to boycott their favourite snack or find another brand if they knew it contained gelatin. So, Rich, do you think this is a, a useful survey or is it just a bit of self-promotion from a vegan sweets brand? Or both. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I was going to say it's a bit of both. I've noticed that many brands nowadays use study surveys to promote themselves because they align with the higher value, let's say, part of things. And I don't think, I think that's good marketing, you know, because you're doing your research and you're making the customer aware that if you choose their brand, probably there's some benefits of doing so. And in this case, you know, not that many people might know what type of animal parts are used to make gelatin, which when you think about it, sometimes you can find pork skin, uh, cattle bone. It's quite disgusting. So yeah, I, I good, good on them. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it also shows, actually, that well, if a third of respondents said they'd be prepared to boycott their favourite snack or find another brand if they knew it contained gelatin, it tells this vegan sweet company that actually two-thirds of people are not willing to do that. So it kind of perhaps shows that there's a, a, a limit to, to their potential market in the in the short to medium term anyway. what I mean, one thing I, I took issue with here was that they think nine in 10 respondents saying that there should be more transparency with labelling gelatin. I mean, it's on the ingredients list, isn't it? It just seemed like a bit of a, I don't know how that question was phrased, but I just think surely uh, it's being written on the packet. Like what more do we need to do? Like that just seemed like people blaming packaging for the, for their own ignorance. Sorry, I don't mean ignorance in a in a judgy way. But like it already tells you it's in there. I know. Maybe we should increase the font, right? Make <laughs> well, <laughs> I yeah. Know. I mean, to, to, to be honest, it has caught me out once before um, because obviously, when you when you're looking for vegan food, generally speaking, you're looking for allergens, you're looking for milk, you're looking for egg, um, and you're looking to see if it's suitable for um, vegetarians sometimes. But I, I have bought sweets before, um, and there has been gelatin in them. And I, I luckily happened to look before I started eating them. But yeah, from a selfish vegan point of view, it'd be good if it's written in bold. But really, I think people need to take responsibility and, you know, educate themselves, don't they? Am I just being harsh and grumpy? Is it past my bedtime? <laughs> no, I get your point. I get your point. I mean, one of the things that makes me wonder sometimes when I go to buy food and I look at the labels is I need to book uh, an appointment with my optician, you know, because yeah, yeah. I can't read the thing. I think, you know, it will become more apparent as time goes by that products need to be labelled in a much more understandable way, more accessible to people. And we're going back to you put things so small to hide them from people. Now, we need to make that easy for people. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think mm -hmm. the ideal is whatever we buy, we should be accountable for our choices and accountable for doing the research about that but they need to make it easy for us to find that information. Mm. I think it's a both a both side thing. Yeah. Well, and and even if you just go to the word gelatin, I mean it doesn't say what it is, does it? It doesn't say pig trotter. It doesn't say cow cartilage. So that's that's part of the issue too, isn't it? If uh, if these industries use more straightforward words, then uh, that the truth might be a bit harder to conceal. But um yeah. Do you know what gelatin, vegan gelatin is made of? Um, like uh, a seaweed is some of it, isn't it? Yes, um, isn't it amazing? Okay, let's move on to story eight. This is a bit of a concerning or frightening story, okay? So, this is from the animal reader bird flu confirmed in Antarctic. Yeah, so experts fear that um, the mass death of penguins and seals as a result of this latest outbreak of H5N1 bird flu in Antarctica. Uh, the deadly bird flu virus has been detected in the Antarctic for the first time this week. Scientists from the British Antarctic Survey began testing birds from the region after noting unexpected deaths. The virus was identified in the brown squaz. I hope I've said that right, on Bird Island, which lies off the northwest coast of South Georgia in the southern Atlantic Ocean. It's believed these large seabirds contracted the virus in South America, where H5N1 has resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of seabirds and sea lions, indeed, in Chile and Peru. The H5N1 variant has been responsible for killing millions of birds since its outbreak a couple of years ago. It's alarmed the researchers because of its possible effect 
on unique Antarctic species. Ashley Benison from the British Antarctic Survey expressed their concerns, stating that while they will keep monitoring the island's wildlife, the full repercussions of the bird flu outbreak are still unknown. Bird Island itself is a crucial wildlife sanctuary with endangered birds, 50,000 breeding penguin pairs and 65,000 fur seal pairs. A scientific committee on Antarctic research study highlighted fur seals, sea lions, skuas, gulls and penguins as the most susceptible to the virus. And following the discovery of the virus on Bird Island, most fieldwork involving animals has been halted. I mean, Rich, in, in a sense, it just shows what an all-pervasive disease H5N1 is. Like, it's it's in the Antarctic now. It's It, it seems like it's, it's, it's everywhere, really, isn't it? It's everywhere. It's scary. And it's not a new disease. It's been there for quite a while now. Some books have been written about H5N1. And one of the books that comes to my mind, and I've personally read, and we can talk about it one day in the podcast, is the the one by Michael Greger, How to Survive a Pandemic, which his in his career he started, I believe, with infectious disease. Don't call me on that. But I think he touched on that. And he really explains in a very in a very comprehensive way how these diseases happen, how they can spread, and why we should be concerned about them. Also, how a plant-based diet can help improve the immune system to, you know, be a bit more prepared in case that happens. One one last thing I would like to say is that because of factory farming and the way that birds are kept. It makes it really, really easy for that virus to mutate and to become susceptible to cross the barrier to humans and other species. So it's not only about the methane emissions about the cows, it's also about about pandemics caused by how we raise um, poultry. Yeah, uh, we were talking last week, Kirsch mentioned the point of, of people sort of becoming a bit overwhelmed or saturated with news like this. And how do we get it to, to get through to people? I guess my hope is that actually, when you hear of a virus going from this country to this country to this country, maybe you, you know, it, it doesn't register. For me, Antarctica is is so stark and so different. Like it really shocked me into reading this. And perhaps we wouldn't have been covering this story if it suddenly said, oh, H5N1 is in Guatemala this week. I'd kind of probably just gloss over it. But that's the only slight silver lining I would perhaps take from this is that it, it kind of shocks a few more of us in, into listening to this kind of news a bit more. Yes. Should we go for a lighter story now? Because I think the last stories have been a bit dense. So this one is from Vegan Food and Living. Award-winning Beck Hall Hotel becomes first in England to go 100% plant-based. Yeah, so this is a family-run hotel nestled in the Yorkshire Dales in North England. They say plant-based food doesn't have to mean compromise, and they have been widely reported this week as becoming the first hotel in England to go 100% plant-based. And they've not actually made the transition yet. Uh, They're making that transition on the 1st of December this year, with all bookings, including a vegan breakfast. My tummy is rumbling already. Customers can choose from cosy ensuite rooms in an original 1705 cottage 
or more modern fittings with streamside views. I feel like I'm doing their marketing for them right now. The owner said the bold move was sparked from a personal journey, which stemmed from compassion for animals and led to the family going plant-based. They say, we also recognise the positive impacts eating more plants can have on the environment and on health. Some excellent PR there, covering all the bases, not excluding anyone. Uh, we've never looked back, they say. Rich, it looks like we need a, a lad's getaway this Christmas. You up for it? Yeah, yeah, I'm booking it right now. Where, where's the website? Where can I find them? <laughs> Do you know what? I've I've been on the website. I look I looked through it, and it raised a couple of points. Actually, we'll get to the prices. Ooh. The prices were reasonable. I believe there is another all vegan hotel in Great Britain, but it's in Scotland. So this one, Beck Hall, is the first one in England. There is one in Scotland, and I don't fear contradiction by saying that that one is very expensive. But this one, Beck Hall, it was I don't know. 140 a night you could you could go so not not outrageous um so yeah maybe a cheeky little treat um i have a question for you do you take this as the hotel is vegan or they're using the word plant-based quite a lot do you think they're gonna have you know vegan pillows because that's something i've encountered before in a quote-unquote vegan b&b there were still feather pillows stuff like that like to what degree do you imagine they might might be taking it obviously it's just speculation but that's a very tough question, Anthony. I mean, if if I think about it, when I if I said it's a plant-based hotel, what I imagine is they only serve vegan food or yeah. plant-based food. While if I'm thinking about the vegan hotel, what I'm thinking is details, little details, or big details for the animal, of course. But you know, yeah, yeah, a pillow, vegan pillows, no leather seats. No, the no use of animal products whatsoever. I mean, yeah. obviously, there's things that you know you need to comply with the food hygiene. So I guess you need to have your pest control. Which, even if they use that, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think that's not a vegan place because that's by regulation. They have to. They cannot avoid it. Yeah. But yeah, that would be my difference for me. Yeah, I, I mean, it made me think actually. Perhaps this is why. It's been so long for us to see the first vegan hotel compared with restaurants. I mean, there's there's probably thousands of of all of completely vegan cafe, restaurant takeaways in, in the country now, just because in a sense, there's much greater expense to go to, especially if you're already a non-vegan hotel and you've got to replace every pillow, every couch and stuff like that. Whereas actually just switching your menu, calling it plant based, still a bit of a risk, though, isn't it? It's still a risk for them. Obviously, we completely back them, but gosh, it's a bold move. I mean, it's a bold move. There's only one way of finding out, and it's going there and checking for ourselves. I mean, if if you if you are a vegan, which for me it's an ethical vegan, and you go to a place that promotes themselves as plant based, you go there, you see the food, delicious, you know, all the all plant based food. But after you see leather and other things, you kind you kind of disappointed. So it's all about managing expectations. And, you know, I might be assuming that they might might all be vegan and they've taken all the details, you know, and mm. and it's a nice and big surprise. Yeah, and, and actually these these things go in stages, don't they? And and I, d- I don't know, it would be it would have been very hard twenty years ago to see the number of vegan restaurants, cafes that we do now, most of them wouldn't have been able to financially survive. And and so I, I kind of think taking these positive steps, you know, if, if it just being plant-based, quote unquote, is is the first step, then that's that's fabulous, isn't it? They, they'd still have our support, wouldn't they? 
Yeah, and there's one challenge here, and it's controlling people that go there. Because obviously you can be vegan and you can have all your best intentions and get everything plant-based vegan, but you can't control the people that go there. So I think that's something to bear in mind, that yeah. that, that can be a challenge. Well, indeed. The, on their FAQ section, there is a interestingly specific question. Do we have to bring plant-based foods for our dogs? And basically the response that the hotel gives is we are not controlling what anyone takes into their food wise, what people take into their rooms. And there are fridges in your bedroom so you can keep dog food there and and what have you. But that does kind of suggest if you want to take take up a a boneless bucket from KFC up to your bedroom, actually they, they can't stop you. I mean, quite why you'd be visiting that hotel and then buying KFC, I don't know. But it's uh, it's like you say, Rich, it uh, raises a whole load of interesting quandaries, doesn't it? It does, it does. Okay, uh, this is story 10, our final story. From The Guardian again. The smell of money inside the fight to take on unbelievable pig farm pollution. Yeah, so it seems like a theme that we're finishing our news section section each week with a new, news of a new release, and this time it is a film. So this is a new documentary that has stirred up anger with its portrayal of a North Carolina community who are suffering as a result of pork factory toxic waste. The film captures the toxic hog waste produced in North Carolina's concentrated animal feeding operations, which is then sprayed across fields near people's homes, producing a foul and debilitating stench that has severe health impacts. Longtime residents like Elsie Herring and Renee Miller, who, who spoke out on a Guardian investigation on the same issue, incidentally, are among the few who resiliently stand their ground and continue to fight back against the pig farm. They do so despite police harassment, intimidation and other insidious attempts to silence them in a state where many citizens are employed by the same industry. Let's listen to a clip now. They are poisoning our soil, poisoning our groundwater, poisoning people, fellow Americans. They are stealing from them in the present and stealing from future generations. If it does not touch you in an emotional way, if you really get in to look at this issue, whether it's from an environmental standpoint, an animal rights issue, whether it's a human rights issue, whether it's an antibiotic use issue, if you can walk away from this saying, no big deal, you need to come talk to me, come spend, let me take you for three days and let you sit down and talk to these people who have to live with this every day. Matter of fact, let me let you live in their shoes for a day and see if it doesn't change your mind. No, and ain't nobody helping us do nothing. They don't care because we're black. We're back up in the country. I just hope my house don't get burned up tonight from top of the year. I'm sure he's somewhere peeping now. You can believe that. He got his boys on you. What make you think you have a right to set up a hog farm and destroy my way of life? People don't have access to clean air and clean water anymore. One of the most disturbing stories that I've heard is the sensation of being sprayed with shit, basically. I have seen this stream filled with feces and urine from this hog operation right up here more than one time. Almost every fish in the river died. Over a billion fish died in a period of about a week and a half. Everyone else on this road gotta help the fish. Every one of us, trust me. Our health is at stake here. To raise animals in this way puts all of us at risk. 
it is time that the village stand up, step up, and speak up. If these people had lived in McMansions, it would have been a different story. It's the power to control. That's what drives Van to the end of sanity. All the laws protect these industries. No one is protecting us. The Smell of Money is out in select LA cinemas now as well as in New York. Uh, and there is a UK date to be announced, but we don't have it yet. Hopefully it's something when it does come out that we'll be able to review on Vegan Week when the time comes. I think this is a very important documentary to watch. I'll watch it myself and I think I would encourage people I know to at least have a look at it, have a look at the trailer because it has very important information, uh, probably a great message, and we need to know more about these things. So I would encourage everyone to see it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it covers more than just animal rights issues too. Um, important to keep educated on those too. Well, a question to the Enough of the Falafel community out there listening. What are your thoughts on this week's news? Anything we've missed? Anything we've got completely wrong? Let us know your opinions do we need to take to the streets to express our outrage about the United Nations methane cover-up? And does the fact that roosters seem to be able to recognise themselves in the mirror change anything for animal rights? Indeed. We'd love to hear from you. And just a reminder, if you spot news or articles that you think could catch our interest, get in touch with us by email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We're also at Enough of the Falafel on Facebook, Instagram and TikTok where you can get little sneak previews on the news we've co we're covering in each episode. We'd love it if you gave us a follow. This show is kindly sponsored by our friends at Fire and Float Coffee Roasters. They are a specialty coffee roastery based in the Cotswolds with a fully vegan coffee shop on site. They're a vegan founded company run by three friends, Shah, Callum and Phil. And Fire and Flow specialise in roasting and supplying wholesale, co wholesale coffee beans to coffee shops, restaurants, hotels and offices. Fire and Flow love working with other businesses to help them get the most out of their coffee offering. They offer free barista training and full tech support if you take them on as a wholesale supplier of coffee. Fire and Flow are passionate about working with skilled and ethical minded farmers too, making sure the highest quality beans get to them, which they then roast to perfection in small batches at their roastery in Sirencester. And you can visit the roastery anytime book onto one of their barista courses or one of their roastery tours or both via their website it's fireandflowcoffee.co.uk whilst you're there you can check out the fully vegan coffee shop they do pastries as well as all the usual flat white delicious coffeeness their coffee shop is open seven days a week from nine till three and until you can make it over to them Give them a follow on Instagram to get the latest. They are at Fire and Flow Coffee. This week, we wanted to discuss a topic that affects many vegans, our attitude and advocacy at work. Are you surrounded by non-vegans at your workplace? Do you have constant reminders that people consume animal products? Have you ever felt the need to share some facts with your co-workers, hoping that they will make the connection? 
Or have you become frustrated seeing no changes? Or have you not even bothered uh, to get um, not to get labelled as the grumpy and preachy vegan? Many of us work in environments dominated by non-vegans, and despite the need for human connection, we feel frustrated for many attitudes and on all conversations. So our question this week is, should vegans be animal advocates at work? Okay, let's start with you, Anthony. Do you feel like having a low profile at work, or are you spoken openly about veganism? It's interesting you asking that one, because as, as you were asking it, I was thinking the answer would have been completely different. Um, I've been vegan since 2010, and pretty much every year since then, I would have given a different answer because of my own vegan journey. And and also the workplaces I've worked in. I've, I've probably worked in four or five different workplaces in that time. Colleagues come and go and, and dynamics change. And, and that, I think, is a, is a big part of it. As it happens, the place I work at the moment, the, the few colleagues I have that knew me before I, I got the job knew me through my job, my previous job in a vegan cafe, in a vegan restaurant. That's how they knew me. So it kind of my veganism was was not really something that I had to bring up. Um, it was already front and center. And actually, a lot of the people I work with, though it is not a specifically or deliberately vegan company a lot of them are plant-based vegan or are kind of heading in that direction so it's it's quite a vegan friendly workplace and actually because of that I'd probably bring it up less than if it weren't I think as well um, I mean I'm, I'm just speaking for myself here in response to your direct question Mitch my last working role for five years was running a couple of companies that were specifically vegan. They were deliberately vegan. They were there to promote veganism for the animals, a cafe and a restaurant. And so that was front and center in my my day-to-day life and my work and who I was. And I think probably as a result in my current work role, um, therefore I'm kind of going a bit easier on that just as a bit of a natural reaction. Obviously I still care about the animals. Obviously it's still important to me. But I'm kind of feeling a, a, a bit of a, a need to not be talking about it all the time because that was that was my life for like 70, 80 hours a week for five years. So I'm kind of almost taking a bit of a break. So I don't bring it up unless it comes up. And even even then, I'll kind of let the discussion happen without me a lot of the time unless there's something that I object to. And I think that's the thing. I am I'm delighted when other people are having discussions about veganism or about animal rights or plant-based eating or whatever. And I prefer it when they're talking about it than me. Uh, strange as it might sound as a, as a vegan podcast host, I prefer not to do the talking because I think it's better for other people to do so. And I'm very capable and, and confident, I hope, in, in advocating on behalf of animals. So I know I can do it. I don't need the practice. So I prefer for other people to do the talking. However, if someone is stating a fact that is not true or is overlooking a way in which animals are exploited in a certain situation or, or context, then I will I will weigh in. And, and as it goes, it came up at work today because it, uh, we're talking about children toasting marshmallows and, and things like that. So it did come up today and I was involved in the conversation. But oh. generally speaking, because of all the things that I've just said, and I feel like I've given you half my life story there, it's not something that I seek to bring up at the moment unless I feel like there's no other choice. 
thanks everyone we've run out of time but <laughs> I think the discussion no hey you asked um, me the question man <laughs> i did ask the question no it i think it's very interesting and it's not that different from my journey because i started very factual i went vegan not i i envy you because you went vegan um in 2010 i think you said or 2011 that's right it's my it's my 13 year vegan anniversary in two days time <laughs> wow i went vegan in 2017 and my approach was very wrong at the time or at least i consider it very wrong because i remember i went vegan overnight and i was uh, a guy that worked a normal guy working in a company and all of a sudden within a week or two this guy was full of facts and trying to show those facts to the people. And one hard lesson I learned is you don't convince people by facts. At least I didn't have the ability to do that. So it was counterproductive even because people started in a way thinking, okay, he's becoming a bit of a weirdo. More so. <laughs> More so. Can you imagine that? So anyway, I started uh, a cafe. So I started a vegan cafe myself. And therefore, as you were saying, the vegan advocacy there is a bit different because you're driving the company that's your message that's your life and we both know that uh, the amount of hours you put in makes it you know it's the whole day it's your life you want to put the message out there now I believe my approach is a bit different because what I do is I try not to preach openly every day uh, and it's a bit like a bit reactive where I'll answer questions if I'm asked but I've learned that the best way to change someone is to connect with that person from a from a human level. And once you connect with that person, it's a lot easier because you already have the empathy there. You already have established a relationship where you have built some, a certain degree of trust. And therefore, you can share a fact much easier rather than just starting day one, you know, you go in, you just share the facts, I'm vegan, and this is why, and you're not, and you're a bad person. Now, that doesn't work, at least in my view or my experience. So I try, I'm not the best, but I try to connect with people. Yeah, I, I think it, a lot of it depends on how secure you feel in, in your workplace, or rather the relationship between how secure you feel in your workplace and how fiercely you feel that compulsion to advocate on behalf of animals because actually if you if you desperately need a job for, for the income that it provides and, and you're not sure that you're going to uh, be able to find another one or maybe you've just started there I mean I, I would imagine almost everyone in that position is not going to be having controversial conversations with people or, or doing anything other than ensuring they keep that job and and indeed like conversations like this like of course it's okay to to talk ab about things not about work whilst at work uh, for, for most jobs anyway but actually you do need to feel a certain degree of confidence in your job and and your security within it before you're bringing these things up I, I would say from my experience and and indeed that the, the most the most kind of maverick and cavalier I've ever been in a job in terms of how I've advocated for animals was one that I'd been in for two or three years, and actually, if I'd have lost the job, I, I wasn't, I wasn't too bothered. I, I knew I could get an, another one in a similar field, and then I really pushed it. Um, actually, and I was, I was a bit naughty in terms of like changing, changing what the canteen was serving so that it was more plant based and stuff like that without really asking people and and and, and things like that. But because I felt 
I had that confidence and I wasn't worried about the repercussions. Whereas actually for a lot of people, that's not the case, is it? No. And I think you've touched on something very important here. We need to separate what's preaching, what's a belief and security in terms of sticking to what you believe in. Let me give you an example. I mean, one thing is if I go to someone else and I start saying, you know what, you shouldn't eat fish or meat because blah, blah, blah. That's an active preach, let's say. I don't know the word. Mm. I cannot deny that I have certain beliefs that need to be protected for my well-being, let's say. So, for example, there are certain things I will not do. Like if my employer says you need to wear leather shoes, that's a no. Because I'm not preaching. I'm just saying you need to respect this. I'm not vegan. I I can find great shoes nowadays, you know, made by many manufacturers. But actually, I think the first thing you need to do before you preach is to stick to your belief and make, be proud of it and try to find ways around it. You know, like, for example, I can give you an example. I don't like hating food at my workplace because I know it's used by other people that obviously have animal products. Therefore, I choose. I've not asked for a microwave, but what I've choose to do is either not microwave at all or just in certain very specific occasions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, so when when you were saying that, I, I would, my very strong feeling was that I wouldn't want to use the word vegan when having these conversations with people. The reason being, I think it gets people's guard up and actually that then it becomes a completely ineffective thing. So rather than saying, I don't want to use this microwave um, that's had animal products in because I'm vegan. I think the vast majority of people in, in, in a workplace then are going to think, oh, you're just being the annoying vegan. Whereas actually, if you explain, if you explain your reasons for not wanting to do it and just say, do you know what, it's, it's because like this, this smell is really strong and um, I don't consume animal products and, and I, I find it quite disgusting. It's, it's putting me off my lunch. Is there a way around it? I think that's a lot more reasonable and, and we don't get people's back up quite so much more strategic it is but i think the reason it's strategic is it is because it's more reasonable more human and i think like i'm not ashamed of the the label vegan at all but actually i think if you just kind of throw it out there as this crude kind of boom there's the vegan card i I don't think people respond well to it because it just feels like almost like a an awkward excuse that means that you get your way does that make sense Yeah, I understand what you mean. I might think a bit differently here because I think, okay, I'm vegan. I shouldn't. I do say openly I'm vegan at work. Yeah, I'm vegan. Why? Because I don't like to cause unnecessary suffering to animals. And if someone asks me, "Don't, don't you eat the food? No, because animal products have been consumed there. Therefore, I don't want it. I'm very open with this. Yeah, I... Yeah, I get that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think my approach would be for each conversation you're having, for each reason that you're abstaining from something or you're choosing to do things a certain way, if you explain the actual reason behind it in in specific terms, rather than saying, it's because I'm vegan, it's because I'm vegan, it's because I'm vegan. Okay. I think, it, I think it, it helps build bridges and I think it helps people understand the reasoning more rather than sounding a bit like, and sorry, I'm not, I'm not criticizing you, Rich, but I think if we please do, please feel free to do it. <laughs> if we overuse the word vegan, I, I think there's a risk that we sound dogmatic and completely unreasonable. And like with the members of a cult, 
and nothing put rightly, in my opinion, is going to put people off more than than the thought that we're members of a, a dogmatic cult because most people don't want to be part of such things. <laughs> no, makes me wonder, away, because for example, it in my case, it's not about the smell. It's just because animal products have been cooked there. Don't get me wrong, smell too. And I'm sure. thinking, well, there's surely there's some juices that have been, you know, gone all over the place and I don't want that to go in my food so I need in in for what you're saying I should find a way of saying what I feel without putting the word vegan just saying I don't want any animal part or juices that I'm the microwave to go into my food yeah and an example that happened to me a few weeks ago it wasn't paid work but it was a, a voluntary one-off role that I ended up turning down um, it was pacing a race so um, running a half marathon at a specific speed so that others could could join in at that speed so they knew that they would finish the race in a certain time I was offered a role doing that and I found out that I would need to wear a shirt that advertised the dairy industry a dairy company Arla I thought well do I just respond and say I'm vegan I'm not doing that but actually I didn't use the word vegan once I just responded to them and said look I'm really sorry I'm happy to do everything you've said but I'm really not comfortable wearing a shirt that advertises the dairy industry is there something else I could could I wear a different shirt and we had a back and forth conversation and in in the end I I decided no this this wasn't something I wanted to do but I just feel like that that came across as a bit more reasonable and perhaps that person I would be more likely to have a a conversation with them in the future or someone else might be able to whereas if I just said I'm not doing that I'm vegan then that her her response would have been oh another bloody awkward vegan causing problems for me in my work Do you know what I mean? So let me ask you a question, Anthony. Have you had any jobs in the past where you've woken up in the morning and thought, yeah, I'm going to go to work today and advocate for animals and I'm going to make that my mission today? So aside from the vegan company that I I used to work for, where obviously that was a big part of the job, I have had that and it was very noticeable and I got a bit of a name for it. And I don't want to say that it was wrong, because um, it's how I felt at the time and it was my truth. And I don't know that it was the most effective thing to do. A lot a lot of people got to know that I was vegan and they got to hear about veganism and, and, and things like that. And I got in trouble for a few things, one of which I've alluded to earlier in, in terms of making some changes at work that probably were a bit naughty without asking people's uh, consent. Some colleagues that I worked with quite closely ended up going vegan. I don't think that's because I went into work every day with this very determined attitude to uh, to, to make people go vegan, as, as I saw it at the time. I think it's just that they were working with someone every day who was living a vegan lifestyle, who was happy, who was healthy, and it didn't seem to be a massive problem in their life. I think that's what helped people make the connection and, and try it out for themselves. And I don't go into work every day with that with that approach now i'll i'll bring it up if it's relevant or if it comes up or if someone asks a question of course i'm not i'm not ashamed of it i wouldn't hide it but i think that kind of i don't know it was a time in my life where i really felt like i wanted to speak up on behalf of animals and it's before i had a company that was specifically vegan so maybe it came from that but yeah now nowadays less so is is that something you 
like I I don't know I I don't feel like it's it's something I'd say that vegans should do because I think all vegans should do is just their best you know and actually it, there's no use being a vegan advocate if if you keep losing jobs <laughs> because yeah you you keep getting fired for for you know being such an aggressive um vegan ad- advocate no. That's Arguably. even better because you get the chance of going to different places and advocate. That's genius. <laughs> That's a great, great, great strategy. No, I think I think there is a difference between defending your view or asking someone else to change. And I think that's something we need to bear in mind. I think, you know, you can't tell someone what to do. What you can do is be resilient in your belief. Uh, hopefully be self-sustainable uh, uh, in terms of mental health and all this. And therefore, you'll you'll make your way to it little by little. I mean, you can be more outspoken sometimes and other times it's just sticking to your belief and you might get asked. And obviously you can't change everyone, can you? I mean, you can't reach every single person in your organization and talk to them and preach to them. Well, I, th- I think you're bringing up something there that is is a huge challenge, actually, isn't it? Is in that though often we have some influence over where we work. Not always. We might just have to take any job that we can, but but actually we don't really have any influence or much influence over the people we work with. And in the world in 2023, certainly in the UK, most of our colleagues are probably not going to be vegan. And actually, there's a there's a mental health uh, kind of balance and um, equation, I guess, if, if if you like, that we have to work out in terms of how much do we want to push this, bearing in mind that as human beings, we're sociable creatures. And so we need to feel like we belong in community, generally speaking. So actually, it's a big risk to, to distance yourself from people, isn't it? And that's, that's what part of advocating for animals or labeling yourself as a vegan in a workplace could involve, couldn't it? It's a, it's a it's a difficult thing to balance. It's it's a difficult thing to balance, and I think you've touched on something very important. It's the self sustainability and mental health. I mean, you could reach a point where you're preaching, you're preaching, you're preaching, and I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes in some previous places, I got picked up by whatever I did because it's like, oh yeah, you're vegan, but you know what, you're doing this wrong, and that has a toll on on your on your resilience and mental well-being and you're you're just dreading going to work because you know you'll encounter some resistance there sorry can i just seek clarification what what was it that people were saying you've you've done wrong like you're being vegan wrong or you shouldn't be vegan no let's say for example i say that my reason for being vegan is because um of ethical reasons environmental and health and maybe you know they say well it you you driving a car that consumes lots of energy so probably the environment is not that important for you or other things or oh well you don't have led lights what kind of vegan is is that person because you you're not you're not that concerned about the environment so you could reach a point where you're being picked on by little things that kind of seem to contradict your belief am am i am i saying that Am I making sense yeah. of this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think this, this is what this comes back to what, what I said earlier in terms of like needing to, 
needing to listen to how you feel at a a given time. And actually, if there's a a point in your life where you feel like completely energized um, to start advocating on behalf of animals as fiercely and strategically as you can, fitting it into every corner of the day, I've... I've got a friend on Facebook who, well, he's, he's just a distant acquaintance in a, in a sense, but I've just really noticed the last month or two, he's just been at it. Like every opportunity he's, he's advocating on behalf of animals. Fantastic. When you get that fever come over you, but actually if you're, if work for you is something that it's like, do you know what? This is work now. I need this is quite a challenging job or, or, or it's quite tiring or, or whatever. And I just need to focus on that, that there should be no shame for a vegan in deciding, do you know what, this is not the time for me to be proactively pushing veganism and seeking opportunities to get it in the conversation. There should be no shame in that. I do think it it would be a pity if, if veganism came up or there was something that was challenging animals' rights to to agency and, and, and living their own life as they want to. If something comes up that challenges that, I think it's a, a pity if, if as vegans, we can't speak up on their behalf on the occasions when that comes up. But even then, there, there, there could be lots of reasons why you you don't want to raise it or you don't want to challenge it. Workplace dynamics and, and, and mental health we've already, already spoken about. So I think it's important to to follow your own energy on that. I know that that sounds a bit hippy dippy, but like there'll be times when you can really push this and you can really fight on behalf of animals. And I think doing it at the wrong time for you, as well as the wrong time for your audience, is is not going to work in the long term. No. I also think it's about engaging with the people, which we've covered before. It's about building relationships with other people. But also, if we, it's a bit of a more passive approach sometimes. For example, when it comes to events and charities, you cannot participate in a charity event, for example, and therefore you're not telling people what to do. But obviously, you're saying, no, I'm not participating because this goes against my belief. For example, you could participate in a charity that raises money for one cause, but contributes with or, or, or you know promotes animal experimentation, promotes things that go against your beliefs. And therefore, I think it's very important in those instances to stick to your, your belief and say, thanks very much, but I'm not going to participate because... And, and just give the reason. Or you could say, oh, gosh, this is this is such a shame because I really believe in this cause that you're raising money for. I really want to be part of this. Oh, but do you know what? In, in doing so, I'd be going, I would be harming animals because I'm going to this event that's that's serving animal products or whatever. Like, is there a, is there a way that we could avoid harming animals? whilst we're raising money for this very worthy cause. Probably even better, wouldn't it, if you can, <laughs> you can word it like that? You seem like a good advocate at work. Honestly, <laughs> you, your reasoning is very good. I, I th- I'm very lucky in my, my current workplace. Um, there's a lot of uh, what, what you call nonviolent communication and, and people, people talk to each other in a very respectful way. And I think it's... It's, it's taught me about how you can you can really listen to people and you can really communicate authentically. I will say I've I've not had that in most workplaces that I've worked in, but but yeah, just just being authentic in in communicating your reasons for things if if you possibly can. But it do, it does it does use a lot of energy, you know. And and like if you're 
if you're not feeling it one day or you've got other stuff going on, like you can't always be that diplomatic, can you? And that's that's part of the challenge for advocating for animals at work is it it, it takes extra energy that you're already putting into work. You, you know what, Anthony? I think it's very important because what you've highlighted there is is compassion and that's what vegans have, right? It's the compassion where we do, when you talk to someone and you're not preaching openly, but you're just saying things in a very nice way. That makes me think that probably we would be, it would be good for us to get involved in other causes and other social justice causes, because that means we're engaging in the beliefs or the hardship of others, relating to them, because it's all about relatedness. And therefore, we get our message across, but we're not only focusing on that, we're really helping others get their message across and making a better world, I guess. Well, uh, yeah, and, and the, the bottom line is like intersectionality should be about win-win because it's it's not about saying, oh gosh, well, I couldn't possibly take a break from advocating for animals because that's the most important thing. Well, it's not the only important thing, even if you happen to think that it's the most important thing. And actually by advocating for feminism, for, by advocating for trans rights or whatever, like we'll learn things, we'll learn about about people we'll learn about the obstacles that people face and and actually it's <laughs> as important as we think animal rights are it's good for other people to do the talking and actually that from what we learn from those conversations that can then help our own advocacy and hopefully we've built relationships and allies who felt us supporting them and then they're more they're more likely to listen to animal rights as a social justice movement too aren't they that's 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 the theory behind intersectionality actually is that all, all these causes help one another out if if we allow them to yeah and one thing i would like to say is that we need to think about what's the best for the cow for the pig for the chicken and it what's best for them is to reach to the hearts of the people and make them understand you know in a compassionate way that probably there's a better way of doing things. And it doesn't matter the approach as long as you get there in terms of you don't need to shout, you don't need to be preachy, you don't need to tell other people what to do. But if you connect with them and you can somehow open their heart and their mind to be more receptive to listen to why you behave the way you do, why you choose the choices you make every day and you understand them, probably you're reaching a good point there. Yeah, and, and, and this is what it's boiling down to, isn't it? It's actually communicating with groups, communicating with, with people in a community. Like we're, we're talking about this in a work setting, but of course not, not everybody is in a work setting, not everybody has a job, but actually pretty much every single human being on the planet is part of a group, a community, where there are going to be pressures to not advocate for animals as well as opportunities to do so and and the more we can learn about that the best ways to to connect with individuals and groups as a whole whether they're facebook groups that are nothing to do with work or schools or families or workplaces that the, the better outcomes for, for whatever social justice movement that that we're campaigning for i think it's a good moment a good place here to wrap conclusions would you go would you like to go ahead and yeah yeah absolutely so i think my my experience of advocating for animals in the workplace in the last 10 years or so would be that 
we can go through peaks and troughs in terms of our energies and our, our, our drive to ad- advocate for animals and the opportunities will vary too and listening to those 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 energy and opportunity balances I think in the long term is the most important thing and actually advocating for animals unfortunately has got to be a long-term matter for us because this isn't going to change overnight unfortunately so it's it's about us being advocates for the long haul and so that involves choosing our battles recognizing opportunities when they're there and not beating ourselves up if we don't take every single opportunity that's fine more will come along and the silence and the breather that comes from not shouting about veganism all the time will actually probably fortify us really nicely for the next time that we feel like we can advocate on animals behalf what do you think rich well i'd say i think advocating for animals at work is good provided that you are ready to do so that you are well informed that you are not preachy in a way that puts people off but you do it in a way that you stick to your beliefs and you reach to people's hearts and are open to accept their other causes and therefore you know you build relationships will which will increase probably the capabilities you have of um, helping animals i'd also say that you need to be resilient you need to look after yourself because obviously you need to put the oxygen mask first if you don't protect yourself and you burn out you won't be able to have many animals and at the end of the day it's a personal choice i mean going vegan is good enough if you can reach other people in a nice way and turn them vegan it's even better but it's a personal choice it depends on where you are on your life on your mental state and let's face it every job is different your mates can be different so Whatever you do, I know you're doing the right thing. So I'll go for that. Nice. Well, let's leave things there, shall we? So a question to all of you listening right now. What What are your thoughts? How, if at all, do you advocate for animals? Or is it an absolute no, you simply couldn't? You'd lose your job or you don't want to go there or you don't have the energy for it. Or maybe you have and you've made a breakthrough and you've persuaded one of your colleagues to do Veganuary this year. Enough of the falafel at gmail.com is the place to send us your comments, concerns, questions, complaints, anything from this episode, this discussion topic, or any other discussion topic you'd like to have. Rich, we're almost at the end of the episode now. Thank you, as ever, for being here and sharing your thoughts with us. You too, my friend. Remember, we'd absolutely love to hear your voices too on this podcast. Enough of the falafel at gmail.com is the place to send your thoughts, questions, comments and concerns regarding any news stories or anything else covered in this week's episode. Also, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please drop us an email at enoughofthefalafel at gmail.com. We'll answer within... <laughs> go on, go on. Give me the amount of time I need to answer within. What should we say? I uh, I know you're on top of thirteen minutes. Thirteen Th- minutes. Thirty I... minutes. Oh. Thir- no, thirteen. One three. I'm going to answer within thirteen minutes of any email coming in, even if you're sleeping. Yeah, I've got it on 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 loud and vibrate. It's fine. I'll do it. Thirteen minutes. I challenge you, listeners. 
Okay, just to let everyone know, I'm not committed myself to answering 30 minutes. So if you receive an email from me, probably won't be as, you know, as timely. Anyway, that's enough of the falafel from us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I've been Anthony. He's been Richard. And this has been episode seven of Vegan Week. Mm-hmm.